1: Everyone loves The Ancients with Tristan Hughes. In the office, we call him the Tristorian. We make fun of him. But now he's a monster broadcaster in his own right. So it's less funny than it used to be. The joke's on us. He's an absolute legend. He convinced us years ago that there was an appetite for ultra detailed ancient history in a podcast format. And you know what? He was right. If frankly, the classical fare you're getting on this podcast is too meagre, then you need to get involved in The Ancients. He goes really deep. You're going to love it. Check out The Ancients with Tristan Hughes, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's The Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's podcast, where we're talking all about food in ancient Greece and Rome, finally, we're talking about the all important parts of our lives, of human lives through history. Food. And it's about time we talked about food in ancient Greece and Rome. In particular today, we're going to be, shall we say, focusing in on some recreated dishes. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'll explain because our guest today is a friend of History Hit. He's someone who also works at History Hit. This guest is Tom. Tom Dinas. Tom, now, I love this about Tom. Tom is absolutely fascinated, really interested in ancient food. But he doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk too. Because Tom recreates dishes from ancient history. He's got his own podcast, The Delicious Legacy Podcast. He's got his own YouTube channel, where he releases really cool videos of him recreating ancient dishes. And having, let's say, an ancient dinner party in the modern world. And so... We have Tom right on our doorstep. We have Tom at History Hits. So we at the Ancients team, we just like, OK, Tom, we've got to get you on the podcast. We'd love to come over to your house. We'd love for you to recreate some ancient dishes for us for a very special podcast all about food in ancient Greece and Rome. And Tom, he was absolutely delighted. In fact, I can't deny he came up with the idea, and I'm so glad that we pounced on it. Elena, Annie, and myself... Annie and Elena. They're key parts of the ancient steam. We headed over to Tom's. We tried a variety of dishes that Tom created that he cooked up for us that have their origins in the ancient Mediterranean world. And here is the podcast that we recorded at the same time. So without further ado, to talk all about food in ancient Greece and Rome, recreating ancient food in the modern day, here's Tom. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. You're welcome. Wow, it's wonderful to see a fellow History Hits employee, shall we say, person on the team on the podcast today. And, you know, with good reason, you've got this expertise in ancient food. And if we're looking at ancient food in the ancient Mediterranean today, first of all, did it matter a lot what type of food you ate? For instance, let's say, in regards to social status Mm. and so on.
2: That's a good question, and obviously, does it matter today as well? It's a kind of the thing that you have to ask. Of course it mattered, as it matters in our days what you ate. It's a little bit about showing off to your fellow friends, or even to your enemies and your rivals, isn't it? So, in that respect, a lot of that mattered, yeah.
0: And is it one of these things, a medium like food, is it good when looking at the ancient Mediterranean for learning more about everyday life, Or are the things that we have surviving around food more centered around, let's say, the elites of ancient Greece, of ancient Rome, of ancient Carthage and so on?
2: Well, I mean, this question, if you asked me about 40 years ago, probably I would suggest the latter, that we are mostly centered in the elites of the ancient Mediterranean world. But I think eventually there have been many discoveries by archaeologists and food historians, and culinary historians, and through the sense that science progressed as well. So we have a lot more ways of detecting what the ancients ate by the remains of the ancient pottery. So when there's an excavation, and they find a house with kitchens and stuff, the archaeologists and scientists can actually trace elements of what was cooking in the kitchen, what remains were in the DNA analysis, what remains are in the pots. So all that's been happening a lot Especially the last twenty years, I think. So what we have is a lot more information about what the simple everyday people ate alongside with the elites. So that's brilliant. So, like from excavations, for let's say a you know, Vindolanda
0: or wherever, thanks to improvements in science and the excavations, the archaeological remains, you can piece together these little clues into the everyday foods of
2: these people. Whether it's you know living on a frontier like Hadrian's Wall or you know on a farmstead in ancient Greece. Yeah, and of course. We can't piece together exact recipes, but what we find in the remains of the pots, we can actually see what they cooked in there. So we can find traces of X amount of wheat and barley, if it was wine or olive oil or figs, and what types of meat they ate. But that would be like deposits layering up meal after meal. So you might have actually goat and chicken and beef, but actually couldn't be on the same meal. It Might have been different cooking days, of that ancient household, basically. So we have like a broad picture of what the ancients ate, really.
0: It's so interesting. Yeah. I know, for instance, comes to mind, there was like a recent excavation in like Northwest Scotland of like an Iron Age house tower. Mm-hmm. And they found like the charred remains of grains. So they could try and learn piece together a bit about their diet from that. It's just fascinating, isn't it? You find this amazing archeological evidence that has survived largely sometimes by chance, which can just tell you so much about
2: these everyday people. Yeah, it's completely fascinating and that's what made me, one of the reasons that made me focus on food in the ancient world, because we find more and more and I really want to to be able to explore that forgotten corner of antiquity.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we've talked a bit about the archaeology, but let's talk about literary sources. What types of literary sources do we have or other sources in general for food in the ancient Mediterranean?
2: Certainly in literary sources we have Plenty, I think. If you think about poets and philosophers and the ancient Athenian comedies, so all these are part of commentary, social commentary, about how they lived, how to critique the elites and the powerful. So all that had elements of their everyday life. And that food is part of our social life today, as it was 2,000, 2,500 years ago. So from all this stuff, we can find and piece together a more complex picture of how was ancient table. So from that, like 700 BCE, we have an element of how the ancients evolved around food and agricultural work and the labor, and then you have things as Pliny and Cato and Columella writing agricultural manuals. They've been used as late as medieval times. So all this information about not only how to grow something, when to grow it, they also include elements of how to cook it, what to cook. All this give us valuable information about the ancient uh, cuisine.
0: And tell me about, therefore, these papyri fragments, which you seem to be absolutely fascinated by, which also seem to give us an insight into all of this.
2: So these papyri are from Egypt, of course. They are the Oxirichus papyri and they are a group of manuscripts uh, that was discovered in the late 19th century by Grefnell and Hunt, two papyrologists from Oxford. Basically, they were looking at the ancient town of Oxyrinhus. They were looking for manuscripts such as Gospels, the Bible, or Lost Place from uh, ancient dramatists and so on. And they found this bunch of papyri in an ancient rubbish dump. And in a sense, uh, you know, this rubbish dump in Oxyrhynchus um, contained a, a time capsule of a very special kind. As Pompey preserved a snapshot of the Roman life just on that day, the Oxynicus papyri offers a lot more, in a sense, not the bodies or the buildings, but a paper trail of whole culture. So yeah, because it was dry, uh, as it's an, in the desert, all these uh, papyri were preserved. And that gives, us, that gives us an open window to the ancient inhabitants' lives. Because we have all these different fragments of contracts, of private letters, invitations to parties, merchants shipments, and so on and so on. And a lot of legal documents and so on. We find on these fragments, we also find ancient surviving cookbooks in uh, the Greek uh, language from antiquity. So yeah, there are some recipes there for a fish soup, for uh, pickled slash cured meat, for a lentil porridge, sprouts with honey, liver skewers, and that's about it. And we still haven't translated all of them. There's many, many left to be investigated. Here is where we find them. Some ancient uh, chefs' names like Mythaikos, Erastritos, Glavkos, Epenetos, Hyrgesippus. Mythaikos is one of the oldest known authors of cookbooks, by the way.
0: So ancient cookbooks really were a thing, and I'm guessing the cooks themselves, they travelled across the Mediterranean?
2: Yeah, totally. Especially in the Greek world, cooks and chefs were a thing. There was a fad for celebrity chefs even back then, two and a half thousand years ago. So you had all these um, chefs that they were making the name, and they would be hired by merchants or rich people across the Mediterranean. And they were well sought after for culinary skills. And some of them, they were writers. So we have fragments mentioned by Plato, for example, about this famous Sicilian cook called Mythaikos, who's basically, for some reason, Plato didn't like, because, I guess, because of the luxury and extravagance and the rich food and Plato was more about restrained. <laughs> so we have a few of them. No cookbook from the ancient Greek world survived, just tiny fragments or a recipe here and there. So we only have a little bit of information of, for these people and their work, unfortunately.
0: Is this where names such as Epicurus and Archaeostratus,
2: do they come into their own here? Archestratos, yeah, comes to his own here. And then you have people like Chrysippus of Tiana, who has a book on breads and baking, which nothing survives. We just have the name and what the book is about. Epithymus of Athens on salt fish. Saltfish. Salt fish? Salt. Oh, salt fish. <laughs> and Sophon of Acarnina, another famous cookbook writer slash chef of the ancient world. Among the other names, of course, we have plenty of other names, but those were some of the main ones. Yeah, it tells us something that these books haven't survived at all, I guess they weren't so important in the ancient world. I guess it was just a sub-category of medical writing, because food is medicine, and for your well-being as well, food is considered something that you would uh, use to keep yourself healthy. And not only just feed and be alive the next day, but also how to treat ailments. So we have from Hippocrates and Galen, we have medical manuals that talk about all the stuff about how to use food to treat yourself. And that's where the humoral theory comes in place. So we have the four humors, black bile, yellow bile, flame, and blood, which they have to be in balance in the body in order for a person to be healthy and live a well-balanced life, and active life. So depending with the season, something will be unbalanced, so you have to bring it back to balance with some certain foods.
0: Ah, okay, so certain foods healed certain things, as it were. Yeah,
2: Yeah. the humoral theory is very important. It was a theory of maintaining or regaining one's uh, health through a lifestyle of moderation and balance called dietetics. And as in our days, and even more so back then, diet played a role in preventing and curing diseases, and in fact was one of the main areas of study for um, the medical uh, schools as well. So yeah, foodstuffs and disease were seen in the same way as simple and compound drugs. Uh, They were classified in accordance to the theory of the four humours. Yeah, foods had to be judged and balanced for their effects on the bodily humours, month by month, hour by hour, and according to individual person's constitution. The whole approach of the humoral theory and the way they used food and uh, the way they used to balance the different elements of foods reminds us a lot of the Far Eastern cuisine as well. There's a holistic approach to the meal time and this with an emphasis in balance. It's kind of similar with China, when you have the yin and the yang. So there's common to both cultures. I mean,
0: if we're talking about food in the ancient Mediterranean, but just so we get a clear idea, what sorts of foods that you know, we commonly, likely eat today, should we not associate with meals, with food of the ancient Mediterranean?
2: So this is a brilliant question, Tristan, because if we think about Mediterranean food today, What do we think about Italian and Spanish and Greek food? We think about rice, pasta, tomatoes. So for example, potatoes, peppers, chilies, all came from Americas. And all these came from Americans after the 15th, 16th century. So ancient Roman Greece had nothing to do with these foods at all. Then food as rice, aubergines, lemons, oranges, they came with the Arabs via Persia and with the Arabs around 600 CE. So that's, again, around 1,000 years after the classical antiquity, as we think of, you know, the golden age of Athens and so on. So yeah, none of this existed. So we didn't have the staples of potato, we didn't have rice, we didn't have lemons to give a bit of zinc to the food. What did they eat, though? That's the question. <laughs> what did they eat? So they had barley. Barley was a mainstay in ancient Greece because the land wasn't as fertile as the Italian hinterlands. So barley grows better in um, poor soil, so they had more bread made from barley. And that's more of a flat bread; doesn't rise so much. So that was a lot in Greece, in Italy, and Black Sea and Egypt. You had obviously wheat, so you had nice sourdough type of breads with ancient grains like emmer, emmer and faro. These two of the ancient grains that used a lot. So that's all wheat, and we're talking about bread here. Then you had pulses and legumes like chickpeas were very important. You had lupins, which a type of broad bean, and broad beans. So you had this the food of the masses. Onion, garlic, leeks, cabbage, of course, mainstay. And the most important ones is olives and olive oil and figs and grapes and wine and honey.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we'll get into that now. I mean, keeping on that topic then, I believe you've got some food prepared for us today.
2: Indeed, I have some uh, ancient recipes straight from uh, the book of Apicius.
0: Apicius. Now, who is Apicius?
2: So Apicius is the oldest surviving cookbook from uh, the ancient Mediterranean. What we think is that the book was written at the time of Gaius Apicius, which was a Roman um, aristocrat, a very rich and extravagant Roman, what we call gourmand. He was passionate about food. So we think it's from his era. So we're talking about first century of the common era, the time of Emperor Tiberius. But the actual book is written around 300, 400 years later. So what we have survived, that book from 400 CE. So these recipes are all what we have from the ancient world, surviving intact. They are an eye, they're a glimpse on the world of ancient Rome and Greece, basically. Because we have very rich dishes, spiced to the full, with uh, exotic spices all the way from India, like long pepper and grains of paradise, and you have uh, sylphium and you have herbs, lots of herbs and, and mustards, things that are very spicy and very sweet, with lots of honey and lots of wine and all that, yeah.
0: We mentioned words like sylphium. I'm definitely going to be asking you more about that in due course because it does feel like certain foods aren't there, as I'm sure we'll chat about in a second too. Well, maybe there is mystery surrounding them. There are some ingredients of antiquity that still boggle the mind today. You know, What were these ingredients which they mention and seem to come up again and again and again?
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's two spring to mind right away, which are the most famous, I suppose, garum, or garos in ancient Greek, and silphium. So we have two things here really important in the ancient world, but we cannot really say what they are. We have some vague recollection and we have, as I said, archaeologists and culinary historians working on it. <laughs> and they have plenty of hypotheses on what are they. And so yeah, garum, a sauce, and it has its origins in um, Greece, ancient Greece. Uh, probably from the Black Sea colonies. So Greeks, because the land wasn't fertile and it was poor, they moved all across the Mediterranean and they built big cities in the Black Sea. And Black Sea is rich also in fish and fishing grounds. So a lot of fish, plentiful fish. And this garum is basically a fish sauce made by fermented fish. And that was uh, something used a lot as a condiment, or as a flavoring agent or in the place of salt. Yeah, the modern equivalent would have something like the fish sauce from Thailand or Vietnam, which is very similar in a lot of ways. Then, if we go back to ancient Greco-Roman times, with the expansion of Rome into the Carthage and Spain, they took over the production of garum. And garum, obviously, took many, many forms, because you can make it in many different ways, each way even more labor-intensive and more refined which makes the garum more expensive. The product that you use on the table as a condiment, only putting a few drops in your food, have it on the table with your rich friends to show off, look, this garum costs an equivalent of, you know, a thousand loaves of bread or something like that. So you would have something like that to show off to your, <laughs> to your rich aristocratic friends. It's basically, we only now have some idea of how it was made thanks to archaeologists that they reproduce it, trying to do experiments and find out how it was made. There is one sauce still made in Cetara in Italy, in the uh, Napoli area, in the Amalfi coast, which is made by the local fishermen of the small village of Cetara, and they make it with salted fish in a barrel, and they just take the liquid afterwards, according to the thousand-year-old recipe from a local monastery.
0: And quickly, just before we go on to this, the recipes themselves, Talk to me a bit about sylphium. This is the other big one, isn't it, of those two?
2: Yes, sylphium is another big mystery, because apparently it grew only in uh, Cyrenaica, in ancient Cyrene, in modern Libya. Obviously we think now it's a desert, but it was a fertile land. Rainfall was a lot more back then, so it was a fertile land full of trees, grasslands and savannas. And apparently this herb, it grew there, and it's called sylphium. It looked a bit like a lick, and apparently it was so tasty for the sheep. So the sheep grazed on that uh, land, on that grassland, and it gave the meat a better taste. So sheep fed in silphium, supposed to be like the Wagyu beef of today. By the time Nero was emperor, silphium gone extinct. Apparently Nero ate the last stalk of silphium, and <laughs> what we know is that. Uh, Romans ate it um, mainly in vinegar, so like a pickle, or uh, dried and used as a condiment in foods, so like a powder. The other myth or rumor connected with Silphium is that when sheep ate Silphium, they fell asleep and the goats sneezed loudly. (laughs) You knew when your Silphium was originating from Cyrene, (laughs) because the sheep would fall asleep. (laughs) But that's all hearsay, right? Apparently, it disappeared. But maybe that's something uh, we should think on in our modern world, like the first man-made environmental <laughs> disappearance. Because uh, basically, it's human greed, isn't it? They thought a valuable commodity will be even more pricey if it goes. If we have less of that. But at the same time, with Alexander's conquests, we have the silphium from Persia, from Media and in India, what we call today Safoetida, that dried powder that we use in a lot of Indian carries and cuisine. So we have something very similar in this form today so we can try that to substitute when we make ancient recipes.
0: Have you ever wondered if the hanging gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. mention that right there so let's go and have a look at some of these recipes that you've cooked up today.
2: So we have three dishes and of course we have a drink as well, an aperitif. We start with an aperitif of spiced honey wine which is in the book of Apicius and this is herbs, spices and honey with white wine all mixed together and let it stay overnight and that was kind of a welcome drink to the guests in the house. We have obviously white wine, honey, bay leaves, black pepper, very valuable in the ancient Roman world it was kept with a treasury with a gold <laughs> in ancient Rome. Saffron for this nice orange colour. We have a mastic which is resin from the tree that grows only in the island of Chios in the Aegean Sea. And this is the first actual chewing gum that the ancients used. To- first
0: chewing gum? Yeah,
2: the ancients used to use it to clean their teeth. Sweet and gives you a nice breath, fresh breath, and also has a very distinct subtle sweet aroma that impernates all the food and all the drinks, so it's very nice in alcoholic drinks and sweets and so on.
0: It is, it is such a beautiful colour, isn't it? I know the whole Ancients team here today were, you know, they're loving it at the moment and like it is beautiful and it's kind of, I guess you can kind of understand why they would have given that as an aperitif if it's in the cookbook for these elites. It kind of also, I guess, feels like the nectar of the gods, isn't it?
2: It is the nectar of the gods, yeah. It really
0: reflects that, isn't it? This this symbol of, I guess, power, wealth and status. Mm. It's
2: the first recipe in the book. The first?
0: Yeah. Ah, so how prime of place.
2: Yeah. So for this one we have uh, quantities, as we do with the main dish of the day today, which is a slow-cooked beef, which has been marinating in milk and honey and asafoetida all night. This is in the recipe book of Apicius, and this is probably one of the few recipes that has exact quantities of ingredients. How much of each. and all the ancient cookbooks. They were from cooks to cooks, basically, and you would adapt it as your master wanted or how many guests you would have the recipe. They never mentioned any precise amounts of ingredients. And this is one of the few ones that we have with precise amounts. So once we marinate the meat, we cook it with wine, honey, dates, fish sauce, that we serve it with something like bread or flatbreads uh, to absorb all the liquid, all the juices, or with legume, like lentils, or some other kind of wheat-based, like bulgur or something like that.
0: You mentioned, of course, the meat for the main course. Mm. What was the starter, then? What was the main course?
2: The starter is a garlic, cheese and herb mix (laughs) which appears in the poem Moretum, which is attributed to the poet Virgil. The first course is inspired by this poem, which has a slave digging for some garlic bulbs and making a starter for his uh, master with cheese and olive oil and wine and vinegar and this garlic. So it's a very spicy, pungent dish, something that's definitely going to wake up your taste buds. (laughs) And it's something that, I guess, you would eat as a first course in the ancient Roman and Greek world. And the main dish is the slow-cooked marinated beef, which the original recipe is with a goat. So it talks about goat. But I thought we'd make it a bit more modern, presenting our modern world a little bit better. I made it with beef. And so this is the main recipe that we're going to taste today, the main dish of the day which has exact quantities, which is very rare in the ancient world. And then we have another dish, honey glazed prawns, mentioned, again, in a poem from an ancient Greek called Philoxenus. So he has a poem of an ancient symposium, talks about the guests being welcomed with flower garlands and girls playing music and all that stuff, and talks about the food. He takes you through the different foods of the menu that they're going to eat, and one of them is honey-glazed prawns. So from that line and from other references, we made a dish today with prawns, honey, olive oil, fish sauce, and lots and lots of oregano and uh, black pepper, which are things that the ancient Greeks used a lot uh, with fish, or well, in seafood.
0: You're very hungry just mentioning all of that, but I've got one big question. One big question, first of all, is this whole idea of cheese with fish. <laughs> now, it's divided opinion here. Okay, bit 50-50 about whether that's like Normal or not normal? I kind of sit on the fence of it doesn't really feel that normal. Cheese with fish, prawns and all of that lot. How do you feel about that? Is it quite a popular idea in the ancient Mediterranean to have cheese and maritime food
2: together? It seems so. It seems so, especially as what has survived to our days, uh, people trying to impress other people. So once you have all these merchants and tradesmen becoming wealthy by commerce all over the Mediterranean, and they find all these ingredients, they want to use them. They want to use all these different exotic foods, and a big fish is a rarity, is expensive, and you have cheese, and you have sauces, and spicy stuff, and they want to show off, basically, as any normal human being would do. They're showing off by combining all these elements and making extravagant sauces, and pairing ingredients that you wouldn't normally think that will go together. So yeah, we have that element surviving, but at the same time, we have people like Archestratus who was from ancient Sicily, but we don't know anything else about him. We have only tiny fragments of his poem, Life of Luxury, Surviving in uh, Thenaus, in his book, Philosophers at Dinner. So we only have about 62 fragments of his epic poem. But yeah, he talks about going all over the ancient Mediterranean and finding the freshest thing to eat from the local place. So he's kind of talking about terroir and about the freshest ingredients and don't dress it with rich sauces and spicy stuff, because you're masking the flavour of the food. Yeah, so we have both elements here. We have people talking about making it as rich as possible, and then you have the other school of thought that's saying, keep the food simple, eat the freshest food, eat it now, in season, from the place, from the locale that it is. So, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's complex.
0: And Tom, so you mentioned there would be no knives and forks back then, would there? No.
2: No knives or forks. People ate reclining on the sofas. You, so you had one hand supporting your head and you had one free hand. With the free hand you would grab a morsel of food and to grab that you would use a flatbread. Yeah, I don't know if it's because ancient Greek bread was from barley and it was flatbread and that influenced people eating like this or it was the other way around, if you know what I mean.
0: <laughs> well, you know what they say, it went on the ancients, do as the ancients did. So uh, yeah, let's give it a go.
2: Let's try some warm bread.
0: Yes, so, okay, so we've got cheese and bread in front of us at the moment. Yeah. Ooh, it's very strong that cheese, isn't it?
2: It's all the garlic. Mm, that's <laughs> the
0: garlic coming through.
2: It's lots and lots of garlic. That's me having the recipe garlic, because otherwise it would be, it would have been extremely hot, mm. <laughs> extremely spicy.
0: So what else? Just a reminder. What else is in this cheese apart from garlic? I'm guessing the garlic gives it this kind of green colour.
2: Mm, it's all the fresh herbs, actually. So we have celery leaves, parsley leaves, and coriander leaves. All these um, mixed up with the garlic and the cheese.
0: All right, Tom, so what have we got in front of us now? This looks amazing.
2: Honey glazed prawns with lots of oregano and black pepper. Obviously, this is cooked in olive oil, fish sauce for the salt and the pungency, and honey, and that gives us the kind of sweet and shiny element. Yeah, with some fresh herbs.
0: It does look very glazed, I must admit. <laughs> I can't wait to tuck into this.
2: So yeah, let's let's see. You don't have to necessarily like this stuff. Obviously, this is ancient type of food. You, I just make it to see how they ate. That's
0: right. Fortunately, everyone can't can't see our facial expression, so it's all good. But I'm sure it's lovely anyway.
2: <laughs> yeah, the whole thing is about the sauce, because it's something.
0: You really feel that flavoring with the prawn, don't you? That sauce, as you mentioned there,
2: wow. So far everything had honey. Honey was a very important element. Not only as sweet, but also in the savory dishes too.
0: It is really sweet, isn't it? For a fish dish as well. You mm-hmm. can see you mentioned that that honey. It's quite funny that we got that you we're know, drinking this honey aperitif at the same time. So yeah. it's just honey as the drink and honey in the sauce for the food too.
2: So here we have the main dish. It's
0: quite it's quite something to look <laughs> upon. What is this we're looking at? This is the
2: beef? The beef, yeah, slow cooked beef, which has been marinating all night in milk and honey and asafoetida and black pepper with some parsley root actually. That's not the parsnip, but it's parsley root. Let's uh, see how it tastes. It's
0: very tender, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it okay, should be. Yeah, don't need the peppercorns. <laughs> but yeah, that's the idea. A lot of spices, a lot of wine, a lot of honey.
0: Uh, I said it before, but I'll say it again. It's so soft and Tender, isn't it? And with the spices, as you say, it kind of gives that extra flavouring to it at the same time. I tell you what. It's so difficult to tell that it's been marinated in milk at the same time. I mean, especially if you do get one of those peppercorns, yeah. which does just kind of them up. You're eating the beef, and then it just kind of explodes with pepper as you eat into it. <laughs> but was milk used quite a bit as a marinating, you know, kind of sauce? Should we say?
2: From what I've seen, not so much. Actually, that's one of the few recipes I've seen that they've used uh, milk with their meat. Yeah. Generally, yeah, I think things like beer and milk, they've been seen a lot more, like the northern tribes or barbarians doing that. It wasn't something that you would do in Greece or ancient Rome. They would drink the wine always with water, so watered down wine, and yeah, so that would last throughout the night, you wouldn't get drunk. Again, that was considered barbaric, to (laughs) to be drunk and drinking wine without water. Neat wine.
0: This was various types of wine, was that the main kind of... This is this only thing that we're drinking now, was that the main sort of drink that you'd expect with a dish like this then?
2: In the Roman times, certainly, and then this same drink, which is called Conditum Paradoxum, would be served throughout the Byzantine period, so Eastern Roman Empire basically. The imperial court and all the aristocrats would have a Conditum as an aperitif before the meals, before the big dinners and stuff and parties and events. But wine-wise, obviously, Every year you would have a new vintage of wine and generally there was lots of different varieties of wines. There is a story that Aristotle loved the lesbian wine most, so wine from the island of Lesbos, Mm. which has some very nice uh, indigenous varieties still to our age, to our day. You could try some nice ancient varieties of grapes from the island of Lesbos. Kian wine as well from the island of Chios was very uh, renowned and from Byblos, which is the ancient... Lebanon, Phoenician, Phoenician yeah. yeah, that was very, very famous wine. It's
0: quite interesting how, you know, so many of these wines, it seems, you know, they're like the best of the best, they seem to come from like various islands of Greece, yeah. normally from the Greek mainland, isn't it?
2: Uh, yeah, exactly, the islands, I guess the microclimate, that was part of it, yeah, yeah. And then there's two or three varieties of uh, wines today that they have Greek name in Italy, you can't find them in Greece anymore, so they've been transplanted by the Romans, Italian land and you don't find these varieties in Greece anymore. So one is called Greco di Tufo, white wine, it's really good wine actually. Uh, Alianico, very nice uh, red. Alianico again, that sounds like saying Hellenic. So that's another one called Greganico again, alludes to Greece. So I guess, yeah, they're all varieties being taken by the Romans, which they like to copy everything Greek.
0: And so, Tom, we've eaten these various courses now, from the cheese to the prawns to the beef. Now, what type of person would have eaten a dish like this? Who would this have been available to?
2: So, this would be available to, like, a Roman banquet. You'd have various consuls and aristocrats and people who are very wealthy. So that's something from Apicius' book as well. If you remember well, Apicius was a very, very rich Roman consul. So he would serve something like that or a pork, a whole roasted a suckling pig with honey and garum roasted in the oven. And this, like the festive dishes on, on a long banquet, a whole day banquet of the rich Romans. Because you have all the spices as well, which they were very, very expensive. They were coming all the way from India or from the east coast of Africa up from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean. I mean, Apicius was a very infamous for serving massive, expensive dinners to his guests. And one day, in a whim, he went to Libya from Rome. He sailed, he, he hired a boat and he went to Libya because he wanted to find the best and biggest, fattest red mallet available. So he sailed all the way there nine days, went, found the local fishermen, asked them for the mallet, and they brought them a normal sized mullet as you would find anywhere else. And he, yeah, he left him, he went back straight back to Rome. But yeah, I mean, he was so rich, he could do that, I mean, hire a whole boat travel for nine days in the middle of the winter, go to Libya, come back the same second when you couldn't find anything that you liked. And allegedly he committed suicide when he only had, uh, in today's money, the equivalent of £9 million left on his account. So no person could live with such a small amount of money, so he committed suicide.
0: So no person could live with that small amount of money. He cried in disbelief Uh, when he saw that he had £9 in yeah. today's money in his bank account. 10 million Yeah,
2: yeah. And, and he committed suicide.
0: It's a different world today, isn't
2: it?
0: <laughs> Tom, this has been amazing. It's the first time we've ever done an ancient podcast like this where we're eating food too. The whole team are here are very, very happy for inviting us over and to do this. Last but certainly not least, talk to me a bit about your podcast, All About Food and Antiquity.
2: Thanks Tristan. Yeah you can tune uh, to my podcast called The Delicious Legacy. I explore ancient recipes, ancient uh, food items and herbs and spices from uh, all over the world actually. So I might go from Mesopotamia or ancient Egypt, Greece, Rome and find something that is not known today and try and make it and talk about it or talk about the ingredients themselves or uh, famous or infamous characters from uh, uh, the ancient uh, world.
0: Brilliant. Well, it is a great podcast, so I'm wishing you all the best with it in the days, weeks, months and years to come. And it only goes for me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, there you go. There was History Hits' very own Tom Dinas, a man obsessed with food of ancient Greece and Rome and recreating the food in the modern day, also the host of the delicious Legacy podcast, I hope you enjoyed it. As I've mentioned several times before in these outros, at The Ancients, we're never satisfied with where we are. We always want to go the next step, the next few rungs up the ladder, so we're always trying out new formats. Once again, as I said, I really hope you enjoyed the episode. You know what I'm going to say next, then normal spiel. If you want more ancient content in the meantime and can't wait until Sunday's episode, where you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Every week I write a bit of content for that newsletter explaining what we've been up to in Team Ancient History Hit World that week, whether it's who we've been interviewing, what TV content we're preparing, and so on. Also, if you'd be kind enough to leave us a lovely rating on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get to your podcast from, I would greatly appreciate it as we continue to grow the podcast and spread the love further and further and further afield. I said it a long time ago, but I'm going to reiterate it now. Russell Crowe, we're going to get you on the podcast sooner or later. It's going to happen. But that's enough from me rambling on at the end of the podcast. I will see you in the next episode.